This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM Radio Network. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome. Before I introduce this week's guest, a little recommendation for you. If you're struggling with making important decisions, check out a book called The Necktie and the Jaguar by retired clinical psychologist, Jungian analyst and shamanic practitioner Carl Greer. In this book, he reveals how he tapped into the wisdom and power of unseen worlds for guidance and inspiration. It's a fascinating memoir which offers some valuable keys and questions that inspire the kind of thinking that guides you effortlessly on your own path to transformation. So I highly recommend it. You can check it out at carlgreer.com. And now joining us today to share the stories behind the 10 books that influenced her the most on her extraordinarily adventurous life journey is singing philosopher, voice pioneer, sound visionary, educator, and international singer-performer and recording artist Chloe Goodchild. And Chloe has sung for the Dalai Lama and for world leaders. And at the Dalai Lama's, um, uh, I think it was an ordination in Belfast, um, she was also music director, composer, and a performer at the Vagina Monologues with Eve Ensler in Madison Square Gardens, where she also conducted her Volva Choir which comprised 75 of the top actresses of the world, including Queen Latifah, Jane Fonda, Brooke Shields, and Glenn Close. And Zoe has recorded with Boomy poet Coleman Barks, film director Jane Campion, the Discovery Channel, the BBC, and with leading world jazz and pop musicians. And she's the author of the book, The Naked Voice, Transform Your Life Through the Power of Sound. And she presents and is an author for Sounds True Audiobooks and The Shift Network. And all of that, and much more, was catalyzed by a period of deafness when Zoe was just four years old and fell in love with sound and with silence. And we'll hear more about that later in the show. For now, let's meet Chloe. Chloe, it's really good to have you. You should have been here a few months ago, but I'm so glad that you're here tonight. I'm so happy to meet you again, Sadie. It's just great to be here. Great honour. Lovely. Ah, well, we're privileged to have you. So thank you. Um, Books, 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 books. Um, What was it like for you? having to pick just 10 impossible <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know it's it's a very very interesting practice uh but it's so interesting having had a few months to just reflect on it 
that I'm really, really glad that I chose the ones I chose. Uh, if we were to do it again, obviously, there'd be another 10. Um, my library is insane, you know, and uh, very, I, I guess, uh, I just love books. I love the energy of books, you know, even, you know, how you can sometimes order books that you actually don't even read till maybe a few weeks later. Um, they carry an energy, and I think particularly in this time, you know, where we're so sort of having to spend so much time in front of computers, it's such a relief to, to hold a real book, right? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. Mm. It, it certainly is. If I want to do any serious reading, I take myself to a different part of the house and sit mm. down on a chair with a book in front of me, and it just has a whole other feeling about it. Lovely. And it's interesting yeah. what you say about books because, you know, I've heard some people talk about words as mm. being alive, Mm. Um, and having their mm. own angels or their own davers and um, you know you're absolutely right you could pick up a book and sometimes not even read it for decades but mm. when you do it's always mm. the right moment absolutely absolutely mm. and there are so many different kinds that there are kinds that have many 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 words and then others that you know uh, they may sort of interface like poetry with images, you know, and then that's a whole other thing, you know, isn't it? Because you're holding energy, you know, you're holding uh, the energy of the visual word as well as the the audible or the readable word. Mm. Mm. I was reading a book last night of somebody um, that I'd just been introduced to and I, I was absolutely delighted as I was reading the first pages because it was such a different experience than normal. I mean, mm -hmm. the person's way of thinking and the way he used words to convey mm -hmm. something. And it was, it was so beautifully and expertly done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I read dozens of books, so I don't often think about the words mm. too much you know they're either good or they're not but this mm. one there was a there was something in I think in the personality and the thought processes of the author that mm. really brought this book alive and I was just you know in love with books all over again. It, well it's really interesting that when you take people like John O'Donoghue or um, you know Spanish people that have Latin America mm. voice and you can hear how that finds its way into, you know, the written word as well. Uh, you know, that is so interesting to me. So when you hear John O'Donoghue, for example, reciting his poetry, it's uh, he's achieved his mission, I think. His voice is like music and the music is also on the page. And that was always, always my intention with writing is to see if it's possible to write so that the reader can receive as um, uh, words that uh, that give them that have a vibration. Yes, the frequency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a frequency. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Now that's quite an art to be able because some people will, um, you know, you listen to them read a passage and you're in love with it. If you read the passage without their voice, you don't like it so much. Um, so it's interesting when someone's got that frequency. So interesting, so interesting. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So your books, your 10, um, 
we don't always put them on the page on the website in the order that you write them. Um, I do need to ask if if the original order was chronological or you know my favorite from one to ten or just mm. ten books. Well, they're all so different uh, that I would say they are ten mm. diverse books. Yeah, okay. a diversity of ten books. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the very first one, which is A mag Magical Adventure by one of Germany's most popular and famous authors who also mm. wrote the beloved never-ending story. And the right. book is Momo by Michael Eng. So um, tell yeah. us about this book. What was happening in your life when you read it and why it had such an impact? Well, it's, this, is the, this is the book. I wonder if I can just show that. Yes. Because it's yes. so it's just so magical this particular version of it and um as you can see there momo is the heroine of this story and she is a little girl that i really identified with as soon as i was reading this book i could not put it down uh so it's an adult fairy tale which is always compelling for me. I find it very easy and it really holds my attention. And I think it's because this archetype of this little girl who could be representing so many little girls and boys uh, right now uh, was someone who came into this life with immense wisdom. You know, I'm just aware increasingly of the number of young people I'm meeting at the moment who, have, who just seem to be incredibly old souls. <laughs> You know, and you sort of think, goodness, they so need to be coming yeah. in at this time. So Momo uh, came from the land of amphitheatres. So again, you know, immediately I was caught by that image because I'm a great lover of the resonance that you will find in an amphitheatre. And so that immediately triggered my love of sound and Greece and Crete uh, particularly. And she is really this astonishing character who you know if you saw her in the street as you will have just seen in that image she's got quite a kind of ragamuffin sort of look and feel but um she had this capacity to listen and uh, michael enders describes this quality of listening uh when she listened it was as if you were sitting inside the giant ear of the universe. And that always just really struck me. I thought, wow, you know, more of that, please, you know. And then to read a whole story that is about someone for whom listening was really saved the world. <laughs> Um, she was someone who she had this extraordinary capacity and therefore she was attracting a lot of the just the regular men and women living in the community there was a sweeper and you know somebody working in a shop and so it was at that level it was just again I really liked the fact that it was really all about ordinary people having transformative moments with Momo you know in a very everyday context apparently uh, until suddenly you realize there's this presence of another kind. And these um, presences are uh, what are called the gray men, the gray men that 
uh, wear these suits uh, and they smoke cigars. And whenever you, and they've got these kind of gray hats on, they all look exactly the same. And they start infiltrating the community. And these uh, beings are, um, their intention is to really persuade, to see if they can manipulate as many people as possible to um, take a to have a whole new take on their uh, jobs, on their lives, uh, and to start uh, getting more engaged with the financial aspect of the work they're doing. And of course, all these ordinary people are just like having a really cool time with their hairdressers or sweepers or shopkeepers. You know, there's a real sense of community, and they all meet at this amphitheater with Momo. So you're already in this kind of childlike, wondrous um, experience and a sense of a kind of ideal community that we probably all just treasure if we've had the privilege of that kind of life where village life was happening, you know, and there were people whose doors you could knock on and, and, and they would open their doors and everybody would know everybody. Um, so uh, what happens is, so the presence, this kind of really strange uh, foreign presence, it feels like unfamiliar, starts kind of pervading the atmosphere. And Momo is sublimely unaware of this because she lives in this timeless world. She's not governed by duality, it would seem. She's not governed mm. by kind of us and them, right and wrong, you know, uh, better, worse, you know, good, bad, higher, lower. She's in more of a quantum universe, you could say now, you know. And um, so, thank God. Uh, and she has this... Um, magic creature that shows up in her life just at this moment when the gray men start pervading the community and this creature is called cornelia and cornelia is a tortoise so you know whereas in a you know in a kind of whodunit kind of you know um star trek style uh you know movie that just starts uh intensifying, you know, with more of a kind of war-like, you know, conflict is coming in here. Mm. We're going to face something here that we're going to have to deal with. Um, Cornelia and Cornelia just represents complete timelessness. Cornelia is even deeper than that. Uh, she seems to be able to walk anywhere and nothing touches her. She knows exactly where, rather like a sort of dancing wooly or a Tai Chi master, you know. And so when the absolute um, crisis, there's a, then a kind of buildup of tension in the town because the other beings uh, are not so familiar with how to engage with these guys and they are quite fascinated by them. You know, the idea of having a bit more money would be really nice, you know, and all of that. So, you know, they're kind of all oh, a little bit seduced. And so what goes, what follows is this kind of, um, it's like the drama of, you know, duality meets, uh, you know, the illusion of uh, superficial desire and success and all of that uh, meets the father beyond time. And so this is really interesting. So there's this beneficial Bene beneficent um like uh 
yes, it's like it's like that the presence of Father Time himself, who shows up at a very key moment in the story, uh, and the relationship that Momo has out of time with this incredible he's like a sort of magician archetype uh and cornelia leads her to uh this unextraordinary being this magician character who lives beyond time and as soon as so you 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 have this moment where you sort of think oh my god you know there's there's, there's so much suspense because they're so close to being endlessly assailed by these, the grey men. But Cornelia graciously takes another street or, you know, and they're just down the end and they might be coming, you know, but no, somehow they graciously, gracefully, timelessly manage to get to this, it's like a luminous door. uh, And they go through this door just within split seconds of the the grey men and who cannot uh they, they have no power to to withstand the light that's coming through this door so when i first read this book it was really quite a few moons ago let me see when did i first read it that was your question uh it wasn't that long ago actually i mean it was probably when you see i'm now in my mid 60s right so that it was probably Around about 30s, 40s. Uh, so I say it was not that long ago, of course, just a few years ago. Uh, but no, I didn't read it as a child, is what I mean. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. But it touched uh, the child in me, you know, that was always like that, if you like. That was always kind of slightly out of time, always in wonder, always just like fascinated to know, you know, if trees could speak, what would they say? You know, stuff like that. Um, and much more at home with the elements and, you know, in the etheric realms. Uh, and so this really appealed to me on that account. But also what, of course, uh, maybe I shouldn't say what the punchline is, but it's a very transformative outcome that you wouldn't imagine uh, being possible, I would say. Uh, and that happens through Momo's insight Mm. he has this intuition that knows exactly what to do and she will confront you know illusion if required you know Hmm. because she she knows it's illusion yeah Yeah. when i was uh, looking the book up the author was um known as a proponent of economic reform and claimed to have had the concept of aging money in mind when writing momo Wow. I don't know what aging money means as a phrase. Interesting, isn't it? Because that's really coming up at the moment with the whole economic crisis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, he, he, I think he was quite prophetic, probably. 73, he wrote that book, 1973. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. 50-odd it? years ago, yeah. It, 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 wow. That's incredible, isn't it? Because it, it really is a book for our time, you know. Yes. You know, it, it really speaks to our time. So I can't encourage people to read it enough. Mm, good. Well, the second book on your list is one that you say has been like a second Bible for you since you returned from India in 1990, following a no 
mind experience, which of course we want to know all about. Uh, the book is The Upanishads. Mm. Mm. The Upanishads. Well, if these are like 4,000 year old Vedic texts. And this particular book was, so these um, Upanishads would have been originally written uh, in Sanskritic language or ancient Buddhistic language. They were really the source of uh, really calling the individual to an understanding of oneness, really what that is and what that means. Uh, and so when I came back from India, uh, the experience that called me out there was um, an intensification of inquiry uh, around who am I and what am I doing here? Uh, and I, I'd realized that even though I'd had this whole music education and so on, which was amazing. I mean, I learned so much about music through the lens of Western classical sacred music, for example. Um, but even still, when I got to the end of studying in Cambridge, I could still feel there was something missing. So I went on this hunt. Uh, hunt, and I, I, it's, I, 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 you know, how is it that, uh, you know, we are led on these journeys? You know, it's like, who makes that happen? Is mm. Even that's like, well, I remember when I was 18 and I went roaring off to Africa for seven months to do voluntary service out there, not knowing why, but just knowing I had to get out of England, you know, out of this kind of squeaky clean, overly religious, uh, institutional religious uh, environment that I'd been brought up in. Uh, and my parents just like going, you're making a terrible mistake, you know, And but they were just genuinely, you know, concerned, like who is, you know, roaring off, you know, in the middle of January to East Africa, to 40 miles off the tarmac road. So, um, but, so that was the beginning, I, I would say, of grounding uh, a new music inside me, a music that connected my experience of sound uh, with music as a spiritual practice. And nothing in my English education had really prepared me for that or told me anything much about that. You know, obviously just sing in choirs, you know. <laughs> um, but there was no real kind of authentic, um, focused, uh, embodying practice for that that I could find at that time. So when I went to India uh, after, to cut a very long story short, uh, I'd been dreaming uh, of India, if you like, uh, prior to that time, uh, because I just started absorbing Indian music and what that actually means, you know, the whole music philosophy of India. And the voice is absolutely central to the Indian music spiritual philosophy. So it's the first time that I really encountered uh, an ancient tradition, you know, that had... Uh, really brought together this experience of oneness with sound being the way to it. Uh, and so the Mandukya Upanishad, which I found in the Upanishads book, was the first experience that I found uh, that helped me to navigate this no-mind experience that I had 
when I was in um, India. And in India, I'd been meeting these non-dual uh, teachers, teachers who were really uh, teaching this self-inquiry process, which involved a lot of meditation, silence, um, and just really asking this essential question, who are you? So I then transferred that back when I came back to England to who is singing, you know, so it was like how to find out, I suppose if I'd been a gardener, it would have been who's gardening, you know, or, mm. you know, the question was, who am I? And how is that going to express itself? So the, this book, the Upanishads, really helped me to um, make sense of this incredibly blissful experience that I had accessed uh, through uh, with this transmission master, someone who with whom you sit and you're literally in the presence of someone who by she their sheer presence, they are so embodied, they are so integrated between heaven and earth, they are so free of suffering, they are... Um, their experience of spirituality, you can just feel it, is just lives in every cell of the body. Uh, now, these are really unusual people. And of course, we can find them everywhere. Uh, but it just so happened in my story that this particular teacher showed up there. And he was called Harilal Punjaji at that time, a very unusual master of, of silence. And uh, he really demonstrated to me how silence itself uh, is a way to disappearing the egoic mind. And so uh, that's a longer story. Uh, and I don't know whether you want me to, we can perhaps come back to that later mm. on if you wish. Yeah. Uh, Why don't but, we come back to that if we've got time? Exactly, exactly. But the, the point is, if anybody is listening to this and would like to have access to this being, what happened was I met him before he was known in the world. And um, shortly after that time, obviously, I was telling everyone, as were other people, the Theravadan Buddhist monks that were with me at that time, uh, a wonderful being called Elijah, whose um, wife became Gangaji. Um, and... Uh, Mm -hmm. So the many wonderful things came out of, of, of that particular gathering. And Punjaji ended up be, being called Papaji. Ah. Again, another experience of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the masculine in its most positive form, you know, mm -hmm. in, in its most radiant, if you like. And again, such a relief, you know, when we're living in such a, in such a negative experience of patriarchy, you know, and uh, all of that. So... When I I had this experience, very, very blissful experience, and I remember thinking to myself, goodness, that someone in here was saying, Chloe has now died, right? This is what you were hearing. That's what I was hearing. So there was a, there was a consciousness present, uh, and obviously my human voice was coming out of that. My interior voice was coming out of it and going... Chloe has now died as the personality, the, 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 the one that was once identified with being Chloe. So how are you going to live the rest of your life? 
<laughs> I was only 36, right? So it's like a little bit of a interesting. But of course, when you're in that experience, you don't, you're not concerned about that. You know, we're back with Momo again, if you like. Um, but nevertheless, I was not grounded in the experience. Uh, and so it was really sound and the, these incredible Upanishads, of which uh, the Mandukya Upanishad uh, revealed itself to me in this book. And it's a beautiful book because it's a, just a selection. Yes, uh, yes. And the, this particular Upanishad basically explains the meaning of the universal sound Om. So it's, you know, it was like, and that was really the only sound that made any sense to me for a very long time. Like for easily six or seven months, all I could think to do was sound Om. And just om. And then, so what it does is the Upanishad, I mean, it's like spiritual science of love, you know. Uh, it breaks down the sound into three sounds as three levels of consciousness. And then the fourth, so ah, ooh, and mm. And the fourth being the revelatory sound called turya, which is the absolute transcendent, the transformation of those three sounds. So it's simply saying if you sound those three sounds for long enough, uh, you know, there's a chance grace of Turiya may visit you. In other words, what will happen is your attachment to, you know, your self-identity, your attachment to, you know, the duality game um, will be lifted, will be released. And therefore, the attachment to fear will be released. Hmm. So um, that became absolutely central to to my life's work. Oh. Something else that uh, is very relevant to today, and um, people need to release fear. Oh my goodness! Mm. Absolutely, you know, I cannot encourage people enough to do this. You know, um, and just because what's so beautiful about it is that just like humming, it is completely accessible. You yeah. know, to Everyone, we all know that, you know, uh, even if we, we we have a beautiful moment with somebody, you know, there's a tendency to go, oh, you know, uh, it's just mm. a natural sound. Yeah. And then if you bring the lips together, mm, you basically seal it into the body. And that sound just starts to, uh, it, it starts to instill every single vibrating cell in the body. And it's the most glorious mm. thing. Most simple thing, and that mm, sound. I mean, isn't that the one where we fall into deliciousness or uh, absolute pleasure or satisfaction? Absolutely, on mm. every level. You know, love making, eating mm. beautiful food. You know, deep soul friendship. You know, it's most. Mm. It just is natural. It is. In fact, uh, the lovely Jonathan Goldman has written a whole book about yeah. called Humming Effect. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonathan's talked about that quite a bit, and it, I mean, it is amazing that you know we have we have all of this ability here. Yes, here. It's all here, isn't it? It's yeah. just we just mm. have to open that door, and we're in yeah. it. And it's yeah. so it's a receiving. It's not like. Oh right, now I'm singing. You know, now I'm doing some kind of personality voice thing. It's deeper than that. It's an interior sounding, you yeah. know, 
uh, that you can even then hear as an interior experience that doesn't require any outer sound. And then you're mm. moving deeper into the primordial sound of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And the particular book that we're talking about, the version, there have been so many translations, is a selection by Eknaf Iswaran. Iswaran. Yeah, Iswaran. He's an extraordinary being who I believe spends a lot of time in Scotland. Uh, you know, I think he might be Persian. Um, and he's just, a, you know, he's beautiful. Again, probably if you Google him, you will find, you'll find his live voice. And uh, mm. that's really worth it too. Beautiful yeah. sound. Mm. So book number three is Illuminations, a novel of Hildegard of Bingen by Margaret Sherratt. I think this was published around 2013. And you said you just could not put it down. No, I mean, come on. This is just, you know, whoa. I mean, you know, for somebody that has the capacity to produce something so compelling, you know, as to be able to write a novel about one of the greatest sacred feminists of the medieval era, you know, she was one of the first, if you like, um, of it within the European field. And, oh my God, what a story again. You know, and again, it's it's all about the transformation of, you know, the wounded healer. She's at that time is the poor little girl, you know, who who, you know, gets the deal to be sent as an anchorite locked up at the age of eight um, inside a Christian monastic um, uh, tower with a rather terrifying mentor who um, is her Christian mentor. And uh, she literally spends, I think it's at least four decades in there. Mm -hmm. And imagine that, like, so you've, you've, all you've experienced of ev everyday life, all everyday life, uh, is eight years as a child. So she would have gone right through to her kind of, the beginning of the formation of her mental um, faculties and so on. And not a problem, not a problem. And so what happens is Margaret Sharat takes you through this, the angst of this child, for God's sake, you know, who's having to find her way, uh, you know, trying to navigate this really confined, confining situation. Uh, and it's all about how she navigates that, uh, how she befriends this incredible monk who starts sent, teaching her Latin and the, the names of herbs uh, as he's sending her food through a little hatch in a hole in the wall. Um, she has these all the way through her childhood. She's having these, what they believe, they describe as seizures, like epileptic seizures, or they try to medicalize it. Uh, but what's happening is she's having these visions of the angels of Saint Cecilia, who comes to her being the great patron saint of um, music and various and Mary, you know, and so she's an ecstatic. She is born a mystical child, you know, as many children are. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the nature of the oppressive, you know, what would be for many of us a very oppressive context uh, that actually creates the grist 
and the gradual revelation that enables her to flower and to flourish and to become this master of herbalism and uh, botany of nature of um, uh, and sound and song. And so uh, she starts hearing the monks in the monastery just singing this, these, these incredible antiphons and anthems. And of course, she's wanting to absorb that. And then this fabulous monk who befriends her, you know, because he gets that she's a really inquiring child and she really must understand this. So he teaches her Latin and she starts to become educated, which at that time would not be on the cards. So mm. anyway, you, yeah. you would just be being prepared for, um, you know, marriage uh, and hopefully, you know, a, a very good marriage. Um, so, um, oh my God, what happens is, and just, it's like, what what happens eventually is she is able to persuade, to um, inspire, to manifest. You can feel her spirit and her connection with the heavenly realm, uh, combined with this extraordinary kind of uh, process of having to navigate the confines and the constriction, and also her mentor is becomes increasingly jealous and envious. Uh, of her, you can feel that she's not having the same direct experience of God, you know, mm. that that, um, that Hildegard is naturally having. But she basically eventually manages to burst out of this old uh, patriarchal paradigm and establishes her own um, her own following, uh, and that involves becoming the abbess of this uh, convent. And she's really far out. She comes from a, a, a theatrical background. And uh, so she's, she had enough time to see, you know, the dramatics of life and so on. And she uh, has all her nuns dressing up as brides of God, you know. And she has them. So, they, you know, they know how to drink beer. They, they, they make beer uh, because she wants them all to have really rosy cheeks uh, and to be really alive and embodied. Um, so again, that's really kind of questionable. Mm -hmm. Very progressive. <laughs> Very progressive. But her visions yeah. and her insights and her teachings uh, eventually get translated into these extraordinary illuminations uh, and manuscripts, uh, which, by the grace of God, uh, were uh, uh, the Second World War, were at some point they were received into Germany somewhere, they were hidden. Fortunately, copies were made of them, and the wonderful Matthew Fox, um, he was, this book uh, that I, uh, another book of uh, Hildegard's, Hildegard's um, manuscripts, you can find uh, with uh, Matthew Fox's. He's made a whole beautiful book on the, on the Illuminations. Mm -hmm. title. You know, her story is like the quintessential fairy tale. You know, the Hans Christian Andersen, this child that's, you know, put away and left her to, you know, just do nothing for 40 years. And then suddenly this incredible, you know, happy ending. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's incredible. But it's like there was no, the prince was the prince of peace, you know. It's like yeah. the, 
the you know the, the again you know the the almighty presence of the one you know because she was utterly clear but not only that of course she restored and reunified nature with god so that was one of her great 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 gifts that so all her singing uh is is just celebrations of particularly very you know these beautiful depictions of mary as the goddess of nature of creation very sensuous you know yeah. And uh, so I, I listened to some of these. I, I, again, how do these things happen? But a friend of mine who was an opera singer uh, went off to India at some point, and she just said, I want you to keep this manuscript uh, of Hildegard's music. She said, because I don't think I'm going to have use for it anymore. I couldn't believe it. So I was given these musical, this musical manuscript of her antiphons and so on so i've made a couple of uh versions and i definitely intend to do more uh they're so profound and she's obviously using the you know what what you hear i've got a harmonium here so you'll hear this um you'll hear this just like unchanging sound you know um of the drone right uh and then la, da, 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 da. Da, 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 you know, oh, this was called the greening of the virgin, you know, which basically means the self contained feminine. So, again, like the Indian music. We have this unchanging, our Gregorian chant. That's where these worlds meet. And so that unchanging sound, that's what I love. So you've still got this presence of the one with these amazing musical modes pouring out of her. Incredible, you know. Um, so I made, I made a couple of versions with a string quartet uh, and just brought the sound down a little bit because my practice with them was to see if I could just really embody the sound within my own body more at that time so this was like 2000 and something mm. so it wasn't just a book you read it became something that you know expanded into other areas of your life your music the sound the listening uh, the chanting the singing mm. very uh, full experience for you very full absolutely yeah. amazing and just that yeah. connection between novel and narrative you know yes spiritual just amazing margaret Sherat, thank you very mm. much yeah. mm -hmm. well book number four um the essential Rumi, coleman barks and you have uh traveled with sung with coleman mm. barks toured with a great great blessing a great great blessing i i, I describe him as a kind of dionysian monk uh, you know, from Athens, Georgia, he's an extraordinary being. And uh, my dear friend, Roger Houston, we, we, in a previous incarnation about 20 years ago, we started inviting um, people like uh, Robert Bly, the, the great American poet, and mm -hmm. various like Ram Dass and various people. And to our great delight, Coleman also came over. 
but I actually met him in the State of the World Forum. It was a uh, something that was happening in San Francisco uh, in when was it? 1997, and I I just heard him singing and just reciting Rumi with Jayutal, this wonderful devotional chanting master, and this incredible um, whirling Mevlevi dervish dancer uh, called Zulaika from Santa Fe, an amazing woman, and uh, various and incredible uh, David Darling, cellist, and these incredible uh, Glenn Velez, uh, amazing, these incredible master musicians. And so I was just enjoying listening to, and Coleman just had this wonderful Southern accent, you know, and uh, you'd hear this, you'd think, what's the likelihood that that is going to be the voice of Rumi in our time? You know, because you sort of think, wow, what a really eccentric combination in a way. And it's brilliant. And uh, so from that, that meeting onwards, we started working together. And this book that he created uh, with John Moyne, my goodness, I think his translations, they, I think the reason why they have uh, touched people so much is because they're just ordinary, everyday. He manages to marry ordinary, everyday speak, you know, with this ecstatic love poetry. Uh, and he's completely uncompromised about it, you know. Um, it, the, 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 there have been times, I think, when academic scholars of Rumi who are more familiar with the original Farsi, for example, um, would be questioning his versions. Um, and he's, he's quite clear that he basically, he, he felt his job was to release the Victorian... Um, interpretations from the original language, again, for a contemporary audience. Um, but of course, he was doing it as a spiritual practice. So it wasn't like he knew that he was not doing it, you know. Mm. Um, so, but his programming was exactly, he had an incredible humor, you know, uh, incredible um, wildness, you know, he loved wine, you know, he was, and so a lot of the Rumi poets being about drunken mystics and, you know, all of that, and this sort of collision between, uh, you know, drunkenness and ecstatic states, mm -hmm. uh, beautiful, beautiful languaging. And so uh, that's like a Bible for me, that book. Yeah. 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 Book number five is The Way of Inner Vigilance, Path to the Inner Light, and the Realization of One's Divine Nature by Salim Michael. Goodness me. I'm sorry. You're, this is so interesting. You know, I've never done this before. I'm sure other people say this. It's a really, it's really interesting, not only doing what you've asked us to do, but now spelling it out. Because you start realizing, my God, I now understand why, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, this kind of intensity that has kind of pursued me through my life, that these books all carry this kind of intensity, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of, of, of searching, of love, of presence, of trying to find, you know, a language that really speaks to our time. So um, this book, The Way of Inner Vigilance, uh, was written by this incredible guy who was a student of Gurdjieff. 
uh, and Gurdjieff brought these esoteric teachings from uh, Eastern Europe, Anatolia. He brought them right from Georgia through and created his own utterly original, very fierce uh, spiritual um, method teaching uh, that was very much uh, transmitted through movement, energy movement. And so Selim had actually then translated those teachings into his own version of those teachings. Uh, and Roger, again, my dear friend Roger, we went to visit him. It's thanks to Roger, actually, that we went to visit him in Paris, where he was. And uh, he took us through these very rigorous practices, uh, which involved, you know, standing for a very extended period of time with your arms open out. And the only instruction is to abandon yourself. And you, it's like, what? <laughs> ordinary mind's going, what? What do you mean abandon? Okay, just, just abandon yourself. And then he would just watch, no, no other instruction. And so, you know, like a few minutes later, you know, the, the, the art and so on. So there would be, basically he would be sending the, allowing the body to demonstrate to you the craziness of the human mind. Uh, and the pain, don't you realize what pain I'm going through, you know, and all of that. So there were these incredible um, moments of breakthrough when the egoic mind just had to surrender. So this book that he wrote, which in, was really uh, um, focusing and centra uh, centered on the role of the witnessing consciousness, that was really the deepest teaching I received from it. And it's uh, very profound. It really did bring another very powerful stream uh, into my own teaching and work with the voice was how we learn to observe, you know, without judging, to observe ourselves or others without judging. And that there is this faculty of attention that we don't seem to be born with, uh, but that we can learn. We can learn as human beings, which is to observe without judging. And so he would give us all these kind of crazy eccentric exercises, like at 10 past 11 tomorrow morning, bring total presence to your left elbow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and notice everything red in the street at 4.30 this afternoon. You know, it just... Uh, and he would never explain any more than that. No. Just and then leave it, you to make of it whatever... You're going to make a bit. Exactly. And of course, what's happening there is he's really requiring you to, to start to develop a very deep respect for time. Yeah. Time for presence, for intention, for motivation, and all these basic requirements for a deeper life experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you said something earlier about you're just beginning to realize as we're talking you know, things that you hadn't realized, even as you wrote your list. Um, it's triggered for me an understanding of how 
the books and people's stories. Right. Um, you know, they seem to reflect one another. Oh, um, you know, yeah. your your choice of books is is you know very exotic, very. Um, you know, I, I get the feeling they're all so tactile and they're all so physical and yeah. um, and passionate and mm. rich, mm. like the adventures that you've had, you know. Absolutely. So it does make me wonder, you know, you said at the beginning, I mean, why do we get these nudges to do what we do or to read the books that we read when we read them? But it, it feels like there's this dance going on, you know. Are you picking up the books and are they informing you? Or you informing them, you know, it's it's something that is much deeper than I've ever thought about before. Wow, wow! Well, that's amazing. That's lovely to hear that. Yeah, because yeah, you. That's a, such a great question, Sandy. You know, it's like how which comes first. You know, you hear yeah. about people talking about books falling off bookshelves, and uh, let me see. For me, certainly, the last two books. Uh, the Selim, uh, the Inner Vigilance, this book, um, that came very much through the gift of my connection with Roger, my friendship with Roger. I wouldn't have perhaps known about that. So that was a gift from our relationship. Um, let me see. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So they're like givens, I think, in my experience, very often. Uh, rather than falling off a bookshelf or something like that, they sort of just show up, though. They just, yeah, they do show up. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, of course, people, uh, other people, just like we're doing here, other people will say, have you read? You know, given what you're up to, have you read? You know, so it would come another mm. given. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Really fascinating. And I'm also just beginning to realise how important it is to have contributors then talking about their books, not just compiling the list and publishing it, which mm -hmm. is what we did initially. And it occurred to me a few months later, no, we need to have conversations about these. And uh, I'm just beginning to understand why, because they come alive in a completely different way. Totally. I love it. Uh, you know, as and when I have time, the Audible series, you know, where you can actually just listen to spoken versions of. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm intending to do a spoken version of uh, my books as well. Uh, I know various friends who've done this and they loved it. Mm. Really, it's really fun. Uh, and sometimes it's much easier for people to hear it when it's yeah. spoken. Uh, but as you say, this kind we of thing. feel it then in a different way. Right. Yeah. You know? And we remember it too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. In a different way. Yeah. I just met somebody today called, uh, I think her name is, if I mean, it's like Manuela Altagracia, you know. And so if she'd written to me and said, my name is Alt Ma Manuela Altagracia, I wouldn't have heard how she said it. You know, yes. At this, oh, it's it does make a big difference. Mm. Mm. It does and indeed. Also, also, the your presence and the way you're listening. You know, uh, it's usually the other way around. <laughs> so it's really uh, an incredible. It's a real joy to 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 be in this this way. You know, um, so it's it's a real 
pleasure, you know, to to share what gives you most joy, isn't it? Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And to be heard, isn't it? To be listened, mm. be heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a real, for me, it's a deep listening experience. You know, I listen to people all the time when I interview them, but this these particular, this series is is different. It's got a different frequency to it, a different energy. And uh, it's a very powerful, for me, personally, mm. experience. Yeah. And, you know, the guests, I've yet to have a guest say, they didn't enjoy it. They've all got something very deep out of it, which which is wonderful because, you know, they have to have a reward for doing the task <laughs> and it's nice that they do get something out of it. But, um, no, I think that there is there are some things that we do that, yes. you know, we can't just dismiss as something we're doing. It, it, it has much more meaning. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and just to be aware, because there's the intimacy of our communication and then there's the amazing generosity of all the listeners that are choosing to listen to, you know, from all parts of the planet, you know. Uh, so my gratitude for that, too. The, I always remember Coleman Barks, actually, at the end of all our um, presentations or performances would say, thank you for the quality of your listening that enabled us yes. to communicate like this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, book number six, uh, beautiful title, The Music of Life, Hazrat Inayat Khan. Inayat, have I said that right? Yes, perfect. (laughs) So, tell us about this book. Well, you know, uh, the the whole lineage of um, Sufism and Hazrat Inayat Khan is really the, he was a musician, a phenomenal uh, master musician of the veena, which is one of the oldest Indian instruments. Uh, And it's like the sitar and also the tambura, uh, but it's massive. It has a very, very big gourd. It's, It's really, really big. And he would play that and would sing and uh, literally, you know, you were transformed by the quality of the sound and so on. But this man was an absolute master of instrumental music. But, and he was also, uh, he communicated through, I have 11 volumes of his teachings on the relationship between, uh, you know, sound, consciousness, silence, the word, the spoken word, the sung word. He just, it's just uh, a musical experience, actually, listening and learning from his understanding, which is essentially, again, sourced from this ancient Indian uh, ground of, of the great, you know, wisdom of the Vedas and so uh, he is another author if you like uh, who you when you're reading it it is as if you're listening to music his 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 writings uh, very profound very accessible very um, they just flow off the page you know it's just 
a, a real gift, I would say. He's a kind of genius of, of, of the word. And I think that's because, and there, there came a time in his life when he um, just decided that music was so much a part of who he was that um, he decided just to become a, um, a musician of souls and a teacher of souls uh, rather than, you know, even playing music at all. And so again, his relationship with silence was so profound, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So book number seven, um, I'm never sure how to pronounce this particular word because it, I hear it so many different ways. Chymical, the chymical wedding. Is yeah, well, why not? I mean, I, I know it is the chemical wedding. Chemical. But I, I've heard it so many different ways. Yeah, um, but yeah. it's Lindsay Clark's book published in 1989 and it was the winner of the Whitbread Prize, and you say another showstopper of a story. Well, what an extraordinary writer. I mean, he, he lives his novels. I, you know, I happen to actually literally know him. Uh, and it was one of life's synchronicities that I had just been singing for the Byzantine composer John Taverner uh, in, when was it? It was quite a, a couple of decades ago, actually. And uh, he... I was singing the part of the Mother of God in this, uh, I don't know how you describe it. It was called a musical icon. And I had to sing very, very low. Uh, the John wanted, John Taverner wanted the voice of the Mother of God to sound like it was coming out of the earth. You know, very different from the whole idea of um, her being this sort of disembodied uh character that was sort of floating somewhere off the ground um, and so she had to be faceless she had to be of the earth she had to be primordial so I had to spend quite a lot of time uh, learning this Byzantine music um, and just so happened that um, Lindsay Clark heard it it got um, recorded by Collins Classics into a double CD and somehow or other he heard it and at that time, I believe he was writing another of his books, um, and uh, which I won't name, but he basically, his message to me was that he had to completely rewrite his experience of the feminine after hearing that sound. And so hearing this composition that was coming from this uh, opera called Mary of Egypt, um, so that was all about, again, a piece of music about the sacred feminine, uh, but the feminine as an embodied force in the world. And, of course, that really appeals to Lindsay Clark. So this book is about the... Oh, it's so beautiful. It takes, it takes place over th at least three generations. And Sheila Nagig, you know, this kind of amazing um, shamanic... Um, character who's like the absolute primordial presence of uh, the mother, uh, the feminine. Uh, very often she's depicted uh, on, on churches and uh, in with just sitting rather like these pre-Sumerian goddesses with, um, her, with her legs splayed open and her, her vaginal opening completely open and she's just like this raw earth 
goddess, you know, no uncertain terms. And um, she plays a very important part in this uh, story. And it's all about the alchemy of uh, the relationship between man and woman, utterly beautiful, uh, over three generations. So it's, it's, uh, it's all about what they go through uh, these different characters and how the relationship evolves and deepens and really is portrayed through the metaphor of alchemy from lead to gold, if you like. Uh, and again, another unstoppable read. I could not put that down. It's just extraordinary. So big thank you to Lindsay for that and much more. He, he yeah, more, more. I don't think I've ever... Um had a guest on who's met so many of the people that they're writing about. Oh. That they've chosen. Oh. Yeah, you've met quite a few. That's interesting. Well, it's, mm. it's all, I suppose it's always important to me. I feel maybe it's something to do with knowing the person that also um, it, it makes the writing so much more meaningful. I don't mm. know. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Mm. Yeah. I'd there is a, another layer, I would think, that it gives to it, yeah. I must say, I, w I would love to meet Margaret Sharat, you know, to find out more about how, her experience of Hildegard, how on earth she, she downloaded, it was like a download or something, that mm. novel, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So book number eight is Through Music to the Self, How to Appreciate and Experience Music Anew by Peter Michael Hamill, published in 1979, and you say, it's travelled with you for decades. Yeah, it's still, it's, it will not leave me, even though I'm trying to downscale at the moment, simplify <laughs> my life, it will not leave me. Um, why, oh goodness, it's, it's brilliant. And it, it really brings everything together in a very informed, well-informed way. And so what he's doing is exploring the whole evolution of music from a world perspective. It's, it's eclectic. Um, it's very clearly written, it's very accessible, uh, and he takes you through all genres of music uh, and, and just really uh, invites you into uh, the whole story of world music, really, you know, uh, mm. and gives you stories along the way that, uh, that help you to understand, really, the different mythical, magical, uh, mental uh cultural connections with sound you know coming from different traditions and different cultures absolutely mm. you wrote that it addresses your number one love theme listening do we know how to listen are we losing our skills of listening what is auditory consciousness why does it matter i mean this is something that is you know it's very clear that listening is really important to you. And, um, you know, for a four-year-old who couldn't hear, but was listening regardless, obviously, um, yes, it's, it's such an important thing. Yeah. We need oh. to listen to one another more. We need to listen to the world more, to the planet. You've got it. You've absolutely mm. nailed it. You know, and I think more and more of us are realizing this, mm. you know, the fact that it's difficult for us to to listen beyond the surface drama of life uh, is is concerns me very, very deeply. 
so listening as a practice, an embodied practice, as a practice of compassion, uh, is it's a fierce practice because it involves being able to see much deeper than the dualistic mind can see and be. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And, uh, that's really at the absolute heart of our work with the naked voice. Yes. Uh, yeah. Once you hear yourself, once you can hear yourself uh, and hear your sound and take ownership of, of it again, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a great moment. You know, it's, it's well, we are, you know, taking up a lot of time and I'm loving every single moment of it. But I do want you to talk a little bit about the naked voice. So the next two books, we're going to go through a little bit quicker so that we can hear you tell us, you know, what the naked voice is all about. So book number nine is The Third Millennium, Living in the Post-Historic World by Ken Carey, written in the late 1970s. And of course, he had a wonderful trilogy there, um, Starseed Transmissions and Vision. So tell us what it was about the third millennium in particular. Wow. Well, I mean, all I can say is please, everybody read it now, because this book, again, is it's, it's a, a book for our time. This guy was a postman, right? And he decided they, he was very much a man of the earth and of nature with his wife. He had six children. A big life change. They went off into the um, into nature to live as self-sufficiently brilliant. Again, actually, I realize uh, how important that is for us to learn that right now. And also, and he introduces the book by saying, expressing his gratitude to um, the snow-laden trees that bowed their branches and made it impossible for him to go anywhere whilst he wrote down the words. Um, so it's he receives uh, information from a divine intelligence, if you like. It could be the intelligence of nature. Uh, it just is a message for our time. And it's really saying uh, that it, it's the deepest message is the message of unconditional love and that we are at a huge turning point, which obviously we're all very aware of. Um, and our work is not to respond to it with fear to respond to it with love, with loving, unconditional presence. And it's about so much more, of course, uh, but that is the core theme. Uh, and I cannot recommend it enough uh, because he's integrating worlds. Uh, he's integrating the work of humanity for this planet uh, and on this planet, but even deeper uh, to for us to learn as human beings, to listen to the voice of the planet itself, the earth itself, and to learn from there. Yeah. Mm. So book number 10, Ananda Mai, Her Life and Wisdom by Richard Lenoy, 1996. Well, she, uh, Ananda Mai Ma was one of the great, great, uh, I don't know whether I can possibly show you a picture. Um, you can see a little bit something, I think, here. Let me see. Um, just over to the right, to your right a little. There we go. We've got yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Is. Mm. So this extraordinary being, uh, Sybil, Seer, uh, one of the great saints of the 20th century India. She passed in 1982. Uh, she was my route 
teacher. I started dreaming about her in the 1980s. And it was really thanks to Ramdas and various other events that happened from there that my life was irrevocably changed and transformed. And she and that experience, this encounter with her, uh, gave birth to the Naked Voice. Uh, and Richard Lanoy, who is no longer um, alive, um, nevertheless, uh, he was a great photojournalist and he took that photograph of her in the 1950s. And this book, which he wrote, I think is one of the greatest books on the sacred feminine, uh, which has absolute perennial wisdom uh, significance. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, whether you read it 10 years ago or now. Uh, and so when I saw these photographs that Ramdas first of all showed me uh, of this great mighty saint, but she wasn't just, she, I don't think she wanted to be a guru. She just was born ecstatically joyous. She was just born and singing and laughing. She sang a lot, she laughed a lot. And her teachings were essentially, there is only one, you know, and the at a very young age, she would be just rolling around on the ground and just these mantras would be pouring out of her mouth. You know, she was an extraordinary being, ecstatic being. Her husband became her first devotee. So she lived, you know, quite, she, she really wanted to live a, just a regular life. But she was so extraordinary that the Hindu culture at that time clearly felt the need to protect her. So they started creating, she had this vision for a sacred um, spaces. And so ashrams were built. But uh, so I wanted to know who was this person who'd taken these extraordinary photographs of this being who was just speaking to me through these images. Uh, and for many people that we work with, you know, when you see these images of her, and again, it's the, it's it's that presence of the feminine that is so profound. Um, you know, they want to know. I wanted to know uh, where this Richard Lanoy was, and it turned out he lived twelve miles down the road from where I lived. <laughs> so, of course, of course. Well, so that book, uh, we. Yeah several of us really helped him to get that book written and Element Books published it at that time. Uh, and uh, you can get hold of it. I think you can get copies of it, I hope, because uh, it's probably now out of print. But uh, one of my final life's missions is to get it reprinted, republished. Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable piece. Mm. Okay, so that's your 10 books. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? Well, here's the thing. I am reading the life of Nicholas Rurich, the painter. Mm -hmm. um, what else am I reading? So he was this mystical painter. So that's really looking at the visual aspect of music. It's like his paintings for me are like visual music. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I have been reading and rereading the the um this uh, book number nine uh you know and just loving and just it's it's so revelatory and it really speaks to me now yeah uh, the third millennium mm -hmm. the third millennium i mean i just uh it's 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 a book to travel with i think at the moment a very mm. very strong 
and more silence and actually I'm moving more towards the writing of music I'm and I'm I'm actually collaborating with um, a remarkable cosmologist Jude Caravan I know is, yeah, Jude. right she's she's written this book called Gaia her story which will be yes. published next year and yes. we're working on it um, together as a musical phenomenon as well so oh how wonderful that is a great blessing in my life at this time mm. she is is such a privilege to be working yes. with. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wonderful person. So, um, the naked voice. You have said that our naked voice is our most untapped human resource. And Awakening Through Sound, which also happens to be the name of one of your DVD programs, mm -hmm. can help us break through our vocal limitations, access latent insight and intuition, and bring the gift of our true self to everyone around us. So how do we do that? How do we find our naked voice? <laughs> well, I have one. This is, this is what you were just referring to, I think, um, Awakening Through Sound. Yeah. Um, and um, so I have one very simple question these days. This is like, let me see, 30 years later. And... The question simply is, how do you feel and how does that sound? You see? And so it's not just how do you feel and how does that sound. When you respond to that, so for example, I might just... Ah, 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 ah. without thinking, just, that's just what happened in that moment. So if I do that again, and so that's one thing. So if I do that, I'm still a little bit in a kind of personality uh, voice with you. And you might be listening to that and you will have had your own sort of immediate response to how that was for you or how it sounded or whatever. Um, so to go deeper in, and to deepen the listening component, this unjudging, non-judging listening, all you add to that, how do you feel and how does that sound? You then add another component, which is what quality of silence does your voice leave behind? And that's it. That's the practice. So, ah! And then the practice, as you go deeper and deeper into that, is because uh, for many of us, we will immediately go, oh, well, that was da-da-da-da-da-da-da, or that was da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, we will, we will define it or usually criticize it in some way. So the practice is to deepen into that silence, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, till you're just listening. And then if you do that on a regular basis... You just start to hear the deeper melodies of the soul. Yeah. And, and where does our name come into it? Because you say the sound of our name is very important. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. So if, let's, if you ask me, what is my name? 
What is your name? Chloe. Oh, what is mine? Your Chloe. Okay. Ah. Do it again. What is okay. your name? Chloe. All right. So, uh, Chloe. So that's what just came out naturally, and that's like my programming. Just go, Chloe. Like, so there's a sense of wow, what a conversation we've had. <laughs> I'm just like Chloe. All right. Mm. Now. If I actually just stay present to what I just heard, not change it, not define it, not describe it, Chloe, and then I listen to it again without changing it to what I just heard. So this is the self-remembering practice coming in now. Chloe, I'm not judging it. It's just what it was. Who doesn't, I don't mind. It's just high and then it, Chloe, Chloe. And then if I slow it down a little bit, Chloe, Chloe, Chloe. Now I can start to hear there's a, there's a pitch in there. There's a frequency. Chloe, Chloe. So if I take away the consonants and just leave the vowels, oh, now I can hear without any break, I've moved from speaking to singing. And my name itself has made that happen. My, my connection with my name, which is, for many of us, is the closest identity we have with our human, our own humanity. Chloe. And then you start to hear the sound of it. So you listen more deeply and you slow it down even more and you bring in that question. Who is singing? Chloe. You see? And if there was more time, you just go deeper and deeper and you just do it for half an hour. And life is not the same at the end of that practice as it was at the beginning. You start, the sound starts to return from the head into the heart, that you start to really feel it, and it enters the soul, the soul. And then the soul just, ah, thank you. The soul knows it's being heard, it's being revisioned, it's being remembered. And so this is the beginning of a deepening into who am I and who is singing? Hmm. And the name, it's, it's an interesting one, the whole who am I. A lot of people actually change their name because, of course, many of us were given these names. We had no choice in it. They were just a kind of contract with, you know, the corporation that gave us a birth certificate, you know. So many people actually, they hear, when they hear the sound of the soul, they go, actually, um, I think my name is... And then, or it may be a second name. The second name they were given is actually more connected with the soul, the sound of the soul. So then you move into a whole journey with the sound of the soul, with the musical modes, with the uh, seven sounds of love, with uh, lots of energy movement, and it becomes a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's very, very rigorous, uh, and it really helps us essentially to listen to ourselves in ways we never imagined we would.
Mm. There's so much there to be uncovered and discovered, and it's all within us, and it's all free. It's all free. It's given. You don't need anything, just the body, the sound. Yeah. And, of course, the biological narrative, the psychological, the emotional narrative uh, offers fantastic gateways into the sound. So with a lot of people, we, we, we invite them to um, explore the entire life, the history of this lifetime as sound, nonverbal sound. Mm -hmm. So taking yourself through childhood, adolescence, adulthood, uh, and just listening with this same uh, witnessing presence to who was singing then, who was singing then. And you start realizing that every story, however traumatic, uh, you, need, you actually realize there is no suffering that is too great for human song, mm -hmm. you know? And I one finally, because we really probably yeah. should close by now, yes. <laughs> I will just share with you one simple story, which is um, I had an intruder knocking, four o'clock in the morning, drunken, enraged, uh, male figure who literally, for whatever reason, chose my door to do this, to vent his rage. Long story short, the two of us ended up, so I heard his sound. So I went through a whole kind of God almighty, you know, and all of the, everything you might. Then I started the listening and I thought, this guy has got an amazing voice. He's, and so I joined the voice. I joined his voice. As soon as I joined his voice, silence. He, we ended up singing together. Thank you. Back and forth back and forth and then he, when he was ready he left wow that was not a workshop it was not a an issue with uh, anyone that i had ever met and there it was right at my front door and we just gave each other this gift uh it was extraordinary and it really demonstrated to me the homeopathic power of sound raw sound how mm. if you can catch it you hear it you you welcome it anything is possible mm. gratitude is the outcome yeah chloe i know you have to be somewhere else i'm going to let you go i wish we had more time but i um i'll let you go and i'll tell our audience where they can find out more about you. And I really would like uh, to encourage people to listen to the radio interview you and I did. They can learn a lot more of your story. Um, thank you so much for sharing your 10 Best Spiritual Books with the No BS Spiritual Book Club. Thank you for the invitation. Great, great joy to communicate. Always, with you. always joy to speak with you, Chloe. Thank you. Bye. I'll let you go now and I'll say goodbye to everybody else. Thank you. So, if you want to know more about Chloe, I mean, she sings, she teaches, she performs, she records on her Naked Voice music label. She's a presenter and author for Sounds True Audiobooks and the Shift Network. And her music is available from Amazon, Spotify, Apple, and from her website at chloegoodchild.com. You can also learn more about her seminal book, The Naked Voice, Transform Your Life Through the Power of Sound, which is published by North Atlantic Books at her website and also uh, on uh, Amazon. And you can get that at your local 
Real Deal Bookstore as well. And if you don't want to miss any of these live streaming episodes in this series, uh, you can sign up to save your space to be the first to know who's coming up next and also receive last minute reminders on the video page at the no bsspiritualbookclub.com and there may well be a link as well, a sign up link beneath uh, this video. So that's it for this week and um, we'll be back next week with another episode of the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video interview series. Till then, it's goodbye from me.